The Thinking Long and Short podcast is brought to you by Perfect Spiral. Joe Miglio and John McCarthy take you on a football journey as they discuss the sport in depth. This 365, 24-7 football podcast discusses everything NFL. Off-season, draft, rumors, training camp, fantasy football, and of course, the season. You can get this podcast on Spotify, Perfect Spiral. The Thinking Long and Short podcast is also brought to you by Stay in Step, a veteran ministry podcast. Stay in Step is a veteran ministry designed to help active and prior service members cope with their faith as they transition into and out of the military. If you are someone who's interested in joining the military or a veteran looking for a podcast that you can relate to with your experience and your time in service, give that podcast a listen. Stay in Step Veteran Ministry on Spotify. Also, before we get started, like and subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening on Spotify, give this a follow. If you're listening on YouTube, like and subscribe to the channel. It really helps the podcast. The U.S. stock market got clobbered on Friday as the S&P 500 snapped a four-week winning streak. Stocks fell on Friday pretty severely across the board. The Dow Jones was the one that held up the best, down just spot 8.6%. But the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ were particularly weak. The S&P 500 fell 1.29% on Friday, and the NASDAQ fell even more, down over 2% on the day. The Russell 2000 as well, the small cap stocks, the ones most based in the U.S. economy, fell 2.17%. And really, the stock market wasn't having a bad week until Friday. The S&P 500 was up three out of the five days in the week. But Friday was really a particularly bad day for the stock market and for assets as a whole following the release of the FOMC minutes on Wednesday, which I'll cover in a bit. But even if we look at the bond market, bonds also sold off. Treasury yields rose across the board. And in fact, we're seeing higher yield curve inversions now. So the highest yielding bond in the Treasury market is now the two-year bond yielding well over 3%. The U.S. 10-year bond now yields over 3% as well again. So a lot of traders were selling bonds And this is a sign, as we see in the yield curve inversion, that the economy is heading into a deeper recession. But what's more prominent for the markets is how the Federal Reserve is still going to continue to handle this inflation problem because employment numbers are so strong. A lot of Fed members still believe that they can raise rates by 75 basis points in the September meeting. And so now markets have to start pricing that in because markets were starting to get excited about a potential Fed pivot. But there was no signs of that Fed pivot in their FOMC minute release this Wednesday. And so therefore, higher interest rates are bad for the stock market. And so stocks are starting to price that in now. And it looks like this next leg in this bear market is going to take effect now. And it looks like stocks are going to start heading lower from here. Now, oil on the week also got clobbered on the recessionary fears from the signs being given in the bond market. Also on the uh, anticipation of higher interest rates, oil got as low as $86 a barrel this week, but it did retrace back up above $90 a barrel. In fact, we finished at about $90 per barrel to end the week. And if you look at oil in the UK, Brent oil, That oil is now trading above $96 a barrel. So you see oil pressures are still hurting Europe and the UK much more and having a much bigger impact than oil is in the US. And again, that's more inflationary pressure as we move into the future, because a lot of uh, products that we have in the US are imported from these countries. And so therefore, higher oil prices in Europe means higher consumer prices in America in the future. But another reason that stocks got hit particularly hard on Friday was the rise in the dollar index. And just like stocks have to start pricing in higher potential interest rates from the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, uh, the dollar is now pricing in those same interest rate hikes and getting stronger. The dollar index is back up to $109. So we've had a pretty good recovery in the dollar index in the past few weeks. Remember, we got as low as $105. Now we're trading as high as $109. 
So the dollar has been driven to a five-week high by these Fed rate hike forecasts, and that's also putting a lot of pressure on stocks, on commodities like gold and oil and silver. You know, gold was down one and a half percent on the week, lost about 50 bucks. Silver down over 8% on the week. So commodities have been hit relatively hard in the past week. Again, on anticipation of higher interest rates that may in fact never materialize. But really, if you look across the risk curve, again, stocks got hammered this week, but the most riskiest of assets and riskiest of stocks were the ones that were hit the hardest. If you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin traded as low as 21,200, was down 10% on Friday. There was a sudden crypto market drop, again, because traders are going risk off because one, they're starting to see recession signs in the market, but they're also seeing that the Federal Reserve is not slowing down just yet in its rate hikes. So risky assets are getting sold across the board. And even if you speak of some of the more speculative investments aside from Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, the ARK fund led the declines on Friday was down six and a half percent on the day. And again, those are the most speculative growth stocks in the market. You look at Open Door down six percent, Roku down four point eight percent, Sunrun down six percent, DraftKings down seven point three percent, Block was down six point seven percent, Robinhood down nine percent. Just to name a few of the more speculative, risky growth stocks in the market. Even if you look to the cyclical trade, you look at Caesars was down five percent. Darden, which owns a lot of restaurants, most uh, specifically Olive Garden, uh, Longhorn Steakhouse, they were down two and a half percent. American Airlines got clobbered down five percent. Carnival Cruise Line down five and a half percent. Uber was down three point seven percent. And it was really a broad based sell off across the market. If you look at the S&P 500 heat map on Friday, every sector was red except for healthcare and some oil companies. Basically, everything else across the broader markets was down on Friday. So this was a broad-based sell-off. Traders, again, were selling all stocks, throwing everything away because of the effect that potential higher interest rates is going to have on the market. But again, we start to see that there is some rotation into value-oriented stocks. Again, healthcare stocks were the one sector that rallied heavily on Friday, Again, the oil markets held up pretty well considering the drop in oil and the broad-based sell-off in the overall market. And utilities also held up relatively well to the rest of the market. So the more defensive stocks, the stocks that have a long track record for producing earnings, and the stocks, stocks that typically tend to not be cyclical, like healthcare, did very well. Now, a lot of people would consider oil stocks to be cyclical. I would argue that at this point in the game, oil stocks are no longer cyclical stocks. Typically, the price of oil follows the economy because if you have an economy in a recession, there's a lot less demand for travel and so therefore a lot less oil usage and that usually brings the price of oil down. So energy stocks typically tend to be cyclical, but I would argue that now with the supply and demand constraints in the oil industry and with the amount of inflation we have in the economy, that's no longer the case. Oil stocks tend to be more defensive now and less cyclical. In fact, you could probably argue now that oil stocks are counter cyclical and that the worse the economy does, the better the oil stocks are going to hold up. But again, another reason for why the Federal Reserve is continuing to stay the path in its rate increasing cycle is because of inflation. And we did get a number of inflation data this week. And some of that inflation data is another reason for why we had a broad-based sell-off in the markets on Friday. Now, on Monday, we got the Swiss PPI numbers month over month, producer price index. Now, there, they actually did very well. They were expecting a 0.4% increase in producer prices. Instead, they had a 0.1% decline. And so I think that's one of the reasons why the markets rallied earlier in the week. Again, that was released on Monday, and those numbers came in better than expected. Now, Switzerland is obviously a much smaller economy, and even though they have a major currency, 
it's not one of the more important economies in the overall global markets. So that didn't have as much of an impact. But what had more of an impact was Tuesday, we got the release of Canadian inflation data. There, they had the CPI month over month. Consumer prices rose 0.1% for the month as expected. But the median core price index year over year is still up 5% year over year. So they have 5% inflation year over year. Again, they're a big exporting nation, more particularly of resources and energy. And so that is a 5% inflation that is going to be experienced by the rest of the world. And so that was the start of the pressure from a lot of the inflation data releases that we got over the past week. Now, we also got the flash GDP quarter over quarter numbers for Europe. Now, there we were expecting to come in at 0.7% GDP. Instead, we came in at 0.6%. But what that means is now the ECB, the European Central Bank, has more room to, again, raise interest rates to fight inflation. So I think now that traders are looking to higher interest rates, not only in the US, but in Europe and the UK, which I'll get to in a second, and also in Switzerland, higher rates across the global economy are going to put more pressure on financial asset prices, most particularly prices in the stock market. Now, one of the, the worst inflation data that we've gotten over the past couple months, we got on Wednesday for the UK. For the UK, the consumer price index year over year, economists were expecting inflation to be 9.8% for the year in the UK. And instead, we even beat those extremely high expectations. The number came in at 10.1%. So over the past year, consumer prices have risen by 10.1% in the UK. If you look at the core CPI, which strips out food and energy, prices are still up 6.2% year over year in the UK. And again, these are very, very bad numbers for inflation data across the global economy. And I think that this shows that peak inflation is nowhere to be found. Yes, we may have had a lower CPI and PPI uh, inflation data in the U.S. for the month of July. But as we see, there's broad inflation pressure throughout the entire global economy. Again, we still have a lot of inflation pressures in the U.S. and inflation is not slowing down. And so if traders are realizing that inflation is, in fact, not peaking, that means the market has to head lower from here because that means the market has to discount higher interest rates and all else being equal, higher interest rates means lower stock prices. Now, on Thursday, we also got CPI data for the eurozone. Final CPI year over year came in at 8.9%. So again, you have 10.1% inflation in the past year in the UK. 8.9% inflation in the past year in Europe, and 8.5% inflation year over year in the United States. Clearly, inflation is not peaking. It's a tremendous problem for the economy. Prices are rising in the double digits or near double digits throughout the global economy and putting a huge squeeze on consumers. The final PPI numbers that we got for Germany on Friday, which really helped spark the market sell-off, German producer price index month over month, they were expecting a 0.7% increase for the month. Instead, producer prices increased by 5.3% in one month in Germany. So if you extrapolate that out and annualize that, that's an annualized over 60% increase in producer prices in Germany for the month of July. That is a huge number. That is a Banana Republic style hyperinflation number coming out of Germany. And that really spooked the markets. Again, if you think that, okay, this isn't too big of a deal for US stocks because this is going on in Germany, you're wrong because German exports a lot of their goods and services to the United States and to other economies around the world. And if their producer prices are rising on an annualized rate of 60%, that means that those price increases are going to have to get passed on to those import prices coming into America, which means consumers are going to pay more when they go to the store to buy those imported goods. And one of the big 
pieces of germ, German manufacturing is the auto sector. So if you think of how much pressure that's going to put on an already tight auto market and prices in an already tight auto market, that is a very ominous sign for the markets and for the global economy. But again, a ton of data came out this week showing that we have stagflation, rising inflation with major slowdowns in the global economy. And it keeps proving the thesis that as we head deeper into a recession, inflation does not have to necessarily slow down. In fact, as we head deeper into this global recession, inflation is actually going to get worse. And with as bad as inflation is across the German economy, the rest of Europe, the UK, the US, Japan, none of these central banks are doing what's necessary to actually slow down this inflation problem that is spiraling out of control. Because again, in order to stop that inflation, it's going to take a lot of pain. You're going to have to have a severe recession where people lose their jobs, where people can't take out new credit to buy products and services, and that's going to slow down global growth, but also mean a major contraction in the global economy. And that's why a lot of these central banks are not working to raise prices or sorry, raise interest rates because they know that that's going to have a severe impact on the economy. Now, we got other data that came out this week. Some of the economic data that came out was very poor. If you look on Monday, we got the Empire State Manufacturing Index. Now, there, the forecast was if, uh, to be expected at 5.1. And that anything below 50 would represent a contraction in economic activity. So expecting the data to come in at 5.1 is already an extremely low bar set for expectations. But there we saw a contraction. We got a negative print of negative 31.3. This was the worst reading on the Empire State Manufacturing Index in the history of the survey. So the economic activity in the United States, as far as manufacturing is concerned, is contracting severely. And that is showing that we are heading deeper into a recession. And so that is why the markets rallied earlier in the week. As has been a common theme on this podcast, I've been saying in the markets, good news is bad news. Bad news is good news in the sense that traders have been looking forward to getting recessionary data because they think that that means that a Fed pivot is imminent. And while I agree that that is actually the case, people think that recessionary data means that inflation is going to slow down. So they think that that recessionary data is actually bullish for stocks in the long term, because with inflation slowing, that means the Fed can come in with stimulative policy, lower interest rates and get the markets to go higher. That is all misguided because, again, even though we're getting this recessionary data, Inflation is actually continuing to accelerate, as I just went over in all the, the data releases for inflation that we got on the global economy this week. But again, the economy is getting weak and slowing down dramatically, and that is not causing consumer or producer prices to go down. Again, the worst Empire State Manufacturing Index survey in the history of the survey came out on Monday. Now, if we go later into Tuesday... We got a number of economic data related to the housing market. We got both building permits and housing starts. Now, building permits came in right above the expectation. There were 1.67 million new building permits. Housing starts, though, missed the forecast there. Economists were expecting 1.53 million new housing starts. Instead, we only got 1.45 million. Now, both building permits and housing starts have been stagnant. In other words, the housing starts and building permits have not been increasing nor decreasing in the past several months, in the past few years. So I've been saying this about the housing market, but there really is no growth there. This is not an investable sector because one, there's a very good chance that if interest rates do start to skyrocket, that home sales can decline dramatically, especially if we head deeper into recession, you're going to have less people applying for new mortgages, trying to buy new homes. So there's not really much growth in this sector, but there's also a ton of downside risk. So to me, the entire house, housing sector, the home builders, the mortgage companies, 
Uh, a lot of the retailers like Home Depot or Lowe's to me are uninvestable here because again, there's not much growth available and there's a ton of downside risk. There's a chance that the housing market could potentially come way down if interest rates go way up. But with that, we also got capacity utilization, which came in right at expectations and industrial production month over month beat expectations. Their economists were looking for 0.3%. Instead, we got an increase of 0.6%. So those two pieces of economic data came in better than expected. But again, a lot of this economic data is either coming in right at expectations or missing dramatically. We're not getting big beats anywhere, which is very bad news for the economy and growth in the economy moving forward. But to stick with the housing market for just a moment, again, housing and building permits coming in right at expectations, but not growing at all. Home Depot reported earnings this week. They reported earnings per share of $5.05, and the expectation was $4.94. So they beat on both the top and bottom lines. Earnings per share they beat on, and revenues they also beat on. Revenue beat slightly. They they brought in $43.79 billion. The expectation was they were going to bring in $43.36 billion. So they had a slight beat on the top and bottom line. But for the three-month period ending July 31st, total customer transactions slipped and they actually went down while the average ticket price on transactions grew by 9%. So you see professional contractors also are making fewer visits and are purchasing in higher quantities. But What this really says is that customers at Home Depot are paying more money to buy less goods from the store. So that's more inflation, right? Because sales grew by 9% and they had less store traffic and fewer visits from professional contractors. So same store sales went up 5.8% year over year. So that really tells me that inflation is higher than 5.8% in that sector because they're having less store traffic, but sales increased by 5.8%. Now, again, some strength is still being shown in the home renovation market. But again, I think a lot of that is because people are not buying new homes, right? They're deciding to stay in their home because it's too expensive to sell their home. If they have a 30 year fixed rate mortgage at say, three or 4% and they sell their home and move into a home of similar value. Now they have to take on a mortgage payment with a rate of five, six or 7%. And so it's much more expensive to move into a new home now. And so I think you have a lot of people have decided that they're just going to stay in the home they have now for the next several years. And so they're renovating. But again, I think a lot of that is limited because a lot of people are not going to have the money soon to keep renovating their homes if they're spending so much money on food, energy, insurance, and everything that they have to buy. Again, all this inflation data is eating away the consumer's disposable income. Now, the next set of economic data that we got this week on Wednesday, we got core retail sales month over month, and there we were expecting a contraction of 0.1%. Instead, core retail sales improved by 0.4%. Now, Retail sales month over month came in flat. We got 0% increase in retail sales. But the difference between retail sales and core retail sales is that core retail sales strips out automobiles. So that is the amount of sales across the economy in the retail space without automobiles being sold. So that's a very ominous sign for a lot of auto companies and auto dealers in America. So You have core retail sales increased by 0.4%, but when you include automobiles, it actually was flat over the month. So again, that shows that consumers are buying, spending a lot more money on food, on energy, the necessities, clothes, right? It's the get back to school season. So you have a lot more people spending money in retailers like Walmart. And that is a very ominous sign because it shows that people don't have enough discretionary income left to buy things like automobiles or big ticket items. Now, a funny thing that is going on too is that, you know, speak of more inflation in the pipeline, uh, the, the 
Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed by Congress and the Biden administration made it so that if you buy an electric car, there is going to be a $7,500 tax credit that is placed on buying that car. And then almost immediately after that announcement, Ford raised the price of the electric F-150 Lightning to $8,500. And they were citing that they had to do so because of rising materials costs and labor costs, uh, especially materials costs for the battery cost. Now, obviously, I think both are true, but it's very funny that the government is trying to fix the inflation problem by offering a tax credit, and then they make the problem worse because now that there's a $7,500 tax credit, companies like Ford can now increase their prices by more than the tax credit because there's a more uh, higher artificial level of demand to buy the product. And it just shows that anytime the government tries to fix a problem, they actually make it 10 times worse. But again, it's also noteworthy to understand that materials prices are increasing. The Ford F-150 Lightning hasn't even really been released for sale yet. They are just taking pre-orders. They have a few on the road just testing, but they're already raising the price by $8,500 because of significantly higher costs for building the batteries. Again, $8,500 is a big price increase on a product like that. That's probably going to be representative of a 15 to 20% increase for the F-150 Lightning. But I just thought it was funny that the second they passed the Reflation Induction Act, uh, Reduction Act, we now have more inflation. Now, speaking of retail sales and staying on that for a minute, Target earnings also came out this week. Uh, and despite Home Depot's beat on the top and bottom lines, Target missed expectations on both the top and bottom lines. They were expected to have 72 cents of earnings per share. They only had 39 cents of earnings per share. So they missed by almost 50% and revenues came in at the same expe- at the same as expectations. So there they were expecting 26 billion in revenue and that's exactly what they got. But with revenues coming in at expectations, earnings missed by a big mark. So again, what does that tell you? It means their costs are rising right? Their labor costs are rising. You know, in some retail locations for Target, especially in New York, they're now paying workers $25 an hour. Frontline workers doing entry-level job positions are getting paid $25 an hour. And again, there's a lot of pressure on their costs, right? They still have supply chain issues they're working through. Oil prices are still extremely high. So it's expensive to transport all this product. And so they're missing on earnings. And they actually had a 90% drop in quarterly profits year over year. So they had 90% less earnings this quarter for 2022 than they had in the same quarter for 2021. Again, a very ominous sign. And this is with inventory still being high. So one of the things that economists were expecting was that uh, companies like Target and other retailers were going to start blowing out of their inventory to try and get rid of inventory. They were going to mark it down and make huge summer sales to get more efficient with turning their inventory over. And one of the things that I was saying in pushing back against that is that in an inflationary environment, that is the last thing you want to do as a retailer because any inventory that you get rid of it's more expensive to replace that inventory because of inflation. So the last thing you want to do is blow out of that inventory right away because at lower prices because you want to make the investment in your inventory. Even if it takes a little bit longer to sell it off, you want to make sure you sell it at a higher price because you know any inventory that you have to replace, it's going to cost you more to replace that inventory. So if Target is selling something like clothing, And they know that when they sell that clothing, they have to replace it with clothing that's going to be 10% 10 more expensive to replace it with. They're not going to mark that clothing down to try and get rid of it when there's going to be inflation pressures baked in the pipeline. So that's another thing that economists have gotten wrong here. And again, inventory is still extremely high. They barely reduced it. You know, inventory at the end of the second quarter was... uh, 15.32 billion. At the start of the quarter, it was 15.08 billion. So they barely reduced their inventory. 
And again, that means that there's not as much deflationary pressures in the pipeline that most investors were expecting. Because again, investors were thinking a lot of the companies like Target were going to start putting on huge summer sales. And it turns out that's actually not the case. A lot of these retailers like Target and Walmart are actually raising prices in this time rather than dropping them. And again, it's because they're making those investments in their inventory because they see higher inflation embedded in the economy for the foreseeable future. Speaking of Walmart, Walmart also reported earnings. And contrary to the way Target performed this quarter, Walmart actually had a pretty good quarter. Walmart topped analyst expectations for earnings and revenue in the fiscal second quarter, even as consumers pulled back on discretionary categories like apparel and electronics. Earnings per share came in. They reported $1.77 of earnings per share. The expectation was only $1.62, and revenues also beat by a wide margin. There, the expectation was for $150 billion of revenue. They came in with $152 billion in revenue. And there's a couple of notable uh, uh, things that came out of this earnings call that I want to talk about. First of all, the company reported that they're starting to see a lot more credit card usage versus debit card usage from their customers than they've seen in the past. So a lot of customers no longer have enough money to buy the things that they need. So they're swiping the credit card to make ends meet and get by. I've been talking about that in the last quarter in the economy. Consumers opened 233 million new credit cards. Now, I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, but I don't think I actually clarified how extreme that is. I mean, if you think of the entire U.S. population, there's only about 330 million Americans in the United States. But think about how much of the, that 330 million population is children, right? I would be willing to bet that in the second quarter, for each adult consumer in the economy, each adult consumer on average probably opened more than one credit card in the second quarter alone. And again, it's because interest rates are not going up high enough to stop the consumers from borrowing more money and spending more money. Now, again, if, if the Federal Reserve wants to stop inflation, they have to raise interest rates high enough to get people from, to stop spending as much money. I'll get into more on that in a bit. But to wrap up the earnings call for Walmart, another notable event that happened in this quarter is they saw more buying for generic food items and generic products versus brand name products. Now, in the US, Americans are very concerned the consumer loves to buy brand name products. It's very difficult to get the consumer to buy generic products, but in this environment, people are actually doing just that. And again, it's because they can't afford the brand name products anymore, so they're trading down. They're buying the less expensive food, apparel, electronics because they can't afford the brand name products anymore. And one of the most important notes that came out of this earnings call is that Walmart reported that they are seeing a shift in consumer behavior and that they picked up market share from affluent households. The company told CNBC that about three quarters of its market share gains in food came from households with an annual income of $100,000 or more. So you have customers that are leaving stores like Target, the more expensive stores, to go to Walmart. They're trading down, and I said this was going to happen. Yes, Walmart is going to have a problem passing on higher costs to customers because they already offer everyday low prices. They cater to a consumer that is already extremely weak. But one of the tailwinds for this stock is that they are going to pick up market share as Americans become more and more poor due to inflation. You have people earning a $100,000 and more household income are now shopping at Walmart, trading down because they can't afford to shop at the more expensive stores like Target. They can't afford to shop at the more expensive stores where they sell, uh, they cater to uh, higher levels of income for groceries like Whole Foods. Um, in my area, it's Wegmans. And, you know, my wife and I have recently traded down as well. We used to shop at Wegmans last year. We now shop at Walmart. 
we make over a hundred thousand dollars a year but we've traded down because inflation is eating away so much of our disposable income like it is everyone else's disposable income and so people are trading down they're going to walmart and that is a terrible sign for the u.s economy but again walmart has been able to pass price increases onto their customers because they're selling products that people need and they're getting people to come in the store more and more and people are able to use credit cards to pay those higher prices even if they can't use their debit cards and so the stock was up five and a half percent on this earnings report but i want to point out why it's so important for interest rates to go up for inflation to come down because this is very evident in walmart but i'll use a more uh, prime example Let's say I'm a business owner and I'm running a business and I'm selling widgets, widgets being a fictitious economic product to give an example. But let's say I'm running a business and selling widgets. Let's say I sell those widgets for $10 a piece. And let's say I'm averaging selling a, a thousand of them a month. If I start to notice that everyone in my community is continuing to spend more and more money and has the ability to continue to spend more money. And I realize that I can raise the price of my widgets from $10 to $15 and still sell a thousand of them a month. In other words, that price increase does not affect my sales volume. As the business owner, I'm going to do that because then I get to make more money. See, all businesses want to raise their prices. The only reason businesses hold off on raising their prices is because they don't want to lose sales volume. But as long as businesses think that they can raise their prices without losing sales volume, they are going to do so. And I've made this point before, but you have to also understand that one person's spending is another person's income. So if you are a Walmart employee, the person who really pays your paycheck is the customer who shops at Walmart. Because even the Walmart is the one giving you the paycheck. The money that is coming from that paycheck is money that customers are spending at Walmart stores. So one person's spending is another person's income. Now, people can spend the money they earn, but they can also spend the money they borrow. And if, say, you have a person earns $100,000 of income a year, they don't just spend $100,000, especially in America where people take on debt, right? Maybe that person spends $120,000 because they spend the income they earn, and they also spend the money that they can borrow. Now, as long as people have access to an endless sum of credit cards and other forms of debt that they can take on to continue spending, that means businesses have no ends to how much they can raise their prices. Because if Walmart wants to continue to raise the prices of their food, they're able to do so because people have to buy those products. But even if you think of the apparel section, right? They're struggling to get people to buy apparel, but they're having a much better time having people buy their apparel than Target is because their apparel costs less money. But let's say you have a t-shirt that Target and Walmart are selling. Let's say Target is trying to sell the t-shirt for $10 and Walmart's trying to sell it for $5. Well, Walmart can continue to raise that price to six or seven or eight or $9 as long as they're undercutting other people, other businesses. But the thing is, is people are going to continue to buy it as long as they can continue to swipe the credit card in order to do so. And so as long as people have access to an unlimited amount of credit, that is going to mean that inflation is going to continue to pick up regardless of how weak the economy is, because even if people have less earnings because they get laid off from their job or they're earning less money in a, in a sales role or a commission role, they have access to an unlimited amount of credit, which means they have access to an unlimited amount of spending, which means businesses can continue to pass their, their added costs on to customers and even go further and raise their prices even higher than their costs are going. And again, they're going to do that because they're trying to be as profitable as they possibly can. But the Federal Reserve, if they're going to create actual demand destruction, they have to jam the credit markets up enough to where people can no longer apply for new credit cards, for new personal loans, for auto loans, for student loans, right? They have to get interest rates high enough to actually stop people from spending money. And evident in Walmart's and Home Depot's earnings reports, 
the Federal Reserve is failing to do just that. The last note out of the Walmart earnings report, though, was that they are ending their relationship with DoorDash. They had a partnership where DoorDash was delivering groceries for them. DoorDash was down 15% on the week. It's down 64% in the past 12 months. I've talked about it before. DoorDash, they couldn't earn money during the pandemic. If you can't earn money during the pandemic and you're a food delivery service, you are never going to earn money. This is a very structurally unprofitable business, even when times are good. And as times are getting bad, people are going to spend less money on stuff like food delivery. It's extremely expensive to use their service. And people are going to stop spending money on it because they don't have the money to spend anymore. Because again, they're spending so much money buying their necessities at Walmart. They don't have leftover money to do things like order DoorDash in or order takeout or other types of restaurant foods. The Thinking Long and Short podcast is brought to you by True North Market Research, an investment professional's newsletter, which is a tool for financial advisors and individual investors to stay current on financial market conditions. Investment professionals can use the insightful thoughts provided in the newsletter to keep their clients well-informed and properly positioned to achieve their financial goals. Stay up to date with financial market commentary, investment analysis, and trading thoughts, and join the community Subscribe to the newsletter at truenorthmarketresearch.substack.com to receive your daily updates on the market every week, every day. You get five to six edits a week. The schedule has recently changed on that. But again, it's a good tool. It's a quick read to stay up to date on the markets. You can use it. It's a five to 10 minute read every day. I try to get them out in the mornings before the market opens. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way, but nonetheless, it's a great tool, a quick read to see what's going on in the economy. It's sort of like the identical version of the Wall Street Journal, except I compress everything into a much quicker read and I get the most important data in there for you to understand what's going on in the economy and what's going on in the marketplace. So subscribe at truenorthmarketresearch.substack.com. Now, getting into the last economic data that came out during the week, again, Wednesday we got retail sales, but on Wednesday we also got some economic data that came out for business inventories. Again, their business inventories were expected to increase by 1.4%. We came in right at the expectation of 1.4%. So again, As I've been saying, businesses are not trying to decrease their inventories, as economists have expected, just for what I said before, because when you replace your inventory, you're replacing it with more expensive inventory. So you're not going to try and get rid of it at discounted rates. You're just going to sell it off at a normal rate. In fact, it may take longer to sell off your inventory because you have to raise the prices for it. And so if you're raising the prices for your inventories, that you're trying to sell off, it might take longer to actually sell those inventories off. Crude oil inventories came in 7.1 million less than uh, last month. Now, one of the reasons that oil prices also haven't been rising in the past few months is we've been using the strategic oil reserve to flood the markets with oil that is supposed to be saved for emergency purposes only. And so that has been helping to curve the price of oil slightly. But as you see, even with dumping all of this additional oil onto the markets, the price of oil has been very resilient. Again, we closed the week at $90 a barrel. And if you look at the UK, they're at about $96 per barrel. Now, again, one of the big reasons for those differences is that the United States has been using the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to replace oil and keep prices down. But we can only do that for so long. We're actually draining that reserve very quickly. Once we finish draining that reserve, oil prices are going to continue to rise substantially week after week after week. And we should be returning to the old highs by this time next year, if not quicker than that. So oil prices still, I believe, are going to continue to trade higher to $110, $120, $130 a barrel. It's just taking a little bit longer to do so because we've been flooding the markets with oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And that's not going to continue for very much longer because there's a very limited supply in that reserve. Again, on Wednesday, we got the release of the FOMC minutes. The Federal Reserve 
in anonymous voting stuck to raising 75 basis points in the September meeting, because even though they said they're seeing some signs of inflation coming down, they still have to remain data dependent over the next couple months to make sure that inflation is in fact coming down. But again, if you look at the data, we basically have one CPI and one PPI print that show that inflation came down in the month of July. Again, a lot of that having to do with the fact that oil prices dropped in the month of July, but oil prices, again, very resilient, back on the rise. We're still at $90 a barrel. There's no signs anywhere else that inflation is slowing down. I've covered inflation expectations, consumer sentiment. I've covered consumer spending, uh, preliminary labor costs, unit costs, labor productivity, all of that is showing that there's more inflation baked in the pipeline. And again, even the inflation over all other economies like Europe and Germany and uh, Switzerland, Canada, the UK, those are all, all nations experiencing extremely high levels of inflation. They all import products into the United States. And so Americans have to pay the higher costs of those imports when they go to the store and buy stuff. So again, there's much more inflation baked in the pipeline than most economists seem to understand. But for now, the Federal Reserve is staying the course, raising by 75 basis points, which again is enough to kill the stock market, but not enough to kill the inflation problem. Now, on Thursday, we got the Philly Fed Manufacturing Index. Now, remember, I covered already the Empire State Manufacturing Index, which came in at its worst number ever. Now, the Philly Fed Manufacturing Index did beat expectations by coming in at 6.2 versus negative 4.9 expected. But again, if you couple that with the Empire State Manufacturing number, both manufacturing indexes average out to be a very negative number. Now, on Thursday, we also got unemployment claims as we do every Thursday. There, we got 250,000 initial unemployment claims. So the labor market continues to be resilient. But I think a lot of that is one, people are picking up extra part-time jobs to make ends meet because inflation is so bad that they don't have enough money to make ends meet. So they need more work in their family. So in some cases, you have families where you had one person working before. Now you have one person working full-time and one person working part-time. You have some families where you had two people working full-time. Now they have two people working full-time and one person working a second part-time job. In some families, you have two people both working two jobs. In some cases, you have families where two people are both working two full-time jobs to make ends meet because inflation is killing the middle class. So the fact that unemployment levels still remain extremely low to me is not a sign of economic strength. It's actually a sign of economic weakness because, again, inflation is is extremely severe and it's taking away too much of people's income for them to continue to maintain their budget without working extra jobs. We also got existing home sales data, which came in worse than expected. You know, home sales are now sliding at a level where you see the housing sector coming to basically a complete halt. Uh, the, The housing sector has not been this slow since the peak of the housing bubble in 2007. So we're seeing a lot of housing Uh, sector jobs slowing down. Again, if you think of all the jobs that the housing market creates, the home builders, home builder sentiment is at its lowest level again since 2007. You have a lot of construction jobs that are going to go away in this next recession. You have a lot of mortgage brokers. People are not taking out new mortgages because of higher rates. That means a lot of people in that sector are going to get laid off in the upcoming three to six months. You have a lot of uh, real estate agents that are not selling as many houses now, so their incomes are dropping. So again, the housing sector has no growth baked into the pipeline. At the very best, it's going to hold up where it is, but there's no reason to see any growth in the housing sector for the foreseeable future for the next several years. So again, I think that sector is completely uninvestable here because there's no upside potential. There's only downside risk if rates keep rising from here. Now, that's about all the economic data we got this week. Again, most of it's centered around the inflation data. And again, the inflation data abroad came in very strong in the sense that it was much worse than expected. 
And so therefore, markets now have to swallow this pill. And we could be headed much lower from here, the next leg down in the bear market. Again, stocks rallied pretty heavily uh, in the last month. You know, we were down 20% on the year prior to this month starting. Over the course of the last 30 days, markets rallied by about 10, 11%. But again, some of the biggest rallies occur in bear markets. I think that's exactly what you see here. A lot of people were buying stocks because they expected corporate earnings to fall off a cliff that didn't materialize. So I think you had a lot of people came in rushing in to buy the dips, thinking they were getting a generational bargain. Uh, and I think that's all going to be short-lived. I think we're headed lower from here. Now, there's a couple things that are going on, though, that I want to talk about. I've already mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act causing prices for electric vehicles to go up. But the government's also now spending $80 billion on hiring 87,000 new IRS agents to go after and audit the middle class. Again, that's going to hurt people's take-home pay and disposable income. So that's more pressure, downward pressure on the economy moving forward. Uh, I don't know why anyone thinks this is a good idea, but it's actually going to be very, very bad for the economy. It's going to make businesses less productive. It's going to make corporations less productive, and it's going to make individuals' incomes get lower because they're going to be paying higher amounts of taxes, and they're going to get audited much more and pay higher fees and penalties to the IRS for income that they may or may not have reported in the last year. And that's going to be found by all these 87,000 IRS agents that are harassing the middle class. But with that, also part of the Inflation Reduction Act, the Biden administration is now going to start placing, uh, and it's going to be active in 2023, but they're going to start placing a 1% tax on share buybacks from corporations. So one of the things I think this that did, and again, 1% is a low percentage for big corporations. But I think one of the things that this did is it's pulling forward share buybacks, because if you were a corporation planning to buy back stock in 2023, and now this bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, says that you're going to get taxed at 1% on those share buybacks starting in 2023, well, now you're going to do those share buybacks now, so you don't have to have the tax apply to those share buybacks. So I think one of the reasons for why we've seen the market rally in the past month is because I think a lot of corporations that plan to buy back stock in 2023 instead bought back stock in 2022 uh, to, again, avoid that tax that's coming on corporations. But again, that's another headwind the stock market's going to have to deal with in 2023, and it's going to make corporate America much less efficient, which again means higher inflation in the future because any inefficiencies from the market are going to cause corporate earnings to decline unless those higher costs from taxation are passed on to customers in the form of higher prices, which is more inflation in the future. With that, I also read an article that Apple is issuing bonds to buy back shares. Now, Apple is already in an amazing position to be able to buy back shares. They have a ton of cash on their balance sheet. But again, the fact that Apple and Apple is an extremely efficient company, probably the best company in the world and the most efficient company in the world as far as managing their cash. But the fact that that corporations can still issue bonds to buy back stock, again, shows that the Federal Reserve has not allowed interest rates to rise enough to create demand destruction and to create a credit system where tightening conditions allow for less flow of money. The fact that corporations can still issue stock to buy issue uh, bonds to buy back stock shows that interest rates are extremely too low in this environment to keep inflation down and to keep the flow of money from going down to allow prices to moderate. But again, a lot of companies that are not as good as Apple have been issuing bonds to buy back shares. And that has kind of been fueling this corporate debt bubble that we're now in. Again, we have debt levels in the economy across the spectrum that are all in bubble territory, not just in consumer credit with credit cards and auto loans and student loans, but also in corporate America, we have a record level of corporate debt from the pandemic and from the past 10 years, having interest rates at zero for practically a decade and a half. You have all these corporations in America have taken on so much debt to buy back shares of stock at extremely high prices. And so that has caused for a debt-fueled bubble in the economy 
that just continues to feed on itself. Now, the last point I want to make before I wrap up, uh, a lot of the investing in the U.S. stocks over the past several years has also come from sovereign wealth funds. Now, sovereign wealth funds own about 3% of the entire U.S. stock market. So what a sovereign wealth fund is, if you don't know, is some countries, they have their excess savings and reserves. Instead of keeping them in a treasury or instead of investing them in bonds, what they'll do is they'll create a sovereign wealth fund and invest those funds in securities. And most of the countries that do this invest in the U.S. stock market. So if you take the Swiss National Bank, for example, they have a stock portfolio in the U.S. worth $147 billion, and they own about uh, 983 stocks, give or take, from their last uh, filing. But they own a lot of stocks like Apple, Facebook, Google, uh, ExxonMobil, Pfizer, uh, Johnson & Johnson, J.P. Morgan. These sovereign wealth funds around the world have been investing in the U.S. stock market. But a lot of people don't really look at how this actually occurs. You know, another example would be the uh, the Saudi wealth fund, which just bought seven billion dollars in U.S. stocks. Um, they bought stakes in Amazon, BlackRock, Facebook. You know, they they've been taking their their profits from their trade and investing them into U.S. stocks. So if you think of a nation like Saudi Arabia or like China or Switzerland. Uh, a lot of these countries do this, but think about when we trade with Saudi Arabia or with China. We basically buy a bunch of imported products from these countries. And since we're running massive trade deficits, the way we pay for those imported products is we either issue treasury bonds or we print money and buy them with U.S. dollars. Now, traditionally speaking, when you trade with a country, you're supposed to trade one good or service for another. So you're just trading the goods you produce for the goods they produce. But since America is extremely uncompetitive in producing goods, we don't have many goods to actually use to trade with other nations. So again, when we buy oil from Saudi Arabia, we're paying for the oil either with U.S. dollars or with U.S. Treasury bills because we don't have any products to actually give the Saudis in return for their oil. Now, the, the Saudis then take that those treasuries or those U.S. dollars and they sell them and use them in sovereign wealth funds to buy U.S. stocks to try and generate returns for their country. But think about what's going on. You have an, a nation like Saudi Arabia a huge productive economy producing goods for the United States. The United States gets that imported oil basically for free because what we're using to pay for it is just money that's run off a printing press. The Saudi Arabian government then takes that money and invests it in U.S. stocks. So Americans get wealthier from that investment going into the U.S. stock market and pushing U.S. stock prices up. So Americans get wealthier that work at those U.S. corporations that have retirement funds, investment accounts. So basically, Saudi Arabia does all the work to produce all of its oil. They give it to America for free, essentially, because we're just giving them paper money that gets recycled into the U.S. stock market. And in return for doing no work but getting tons of resources like oil, and like from China, electronic products and things like that, we do all this work or, or sorry, we get all these products. We do none of the work and we get all of the wealth because all those paper dollars get recycled into the stock market. Now, again, this has been a big part of having the world's reserve currency. This is not going to last because it's predicated on the fact that everyone wants U.S. dollars because you need U.S. dollars because it's the world's reserve currency. But sooner or later, once people recognize that all these U.S. dollars we're flooding the global economy with are not worth anything because we have no capacity to produce any goods or services ourselves, that is going to end. Again, if you accept money from a country, the only reason you would do that is because you could buy goods or services with it, right? So if, if again, if you have a nation, let's say the uh, Swiss government trades goods with the German government. Right. But let's say the German government 
exports those goods and instead of getting products, they get back Swiss francs. Well, the only reason they would accept Swiss francs is because in the future they could use them to buy products being uh, produced in Switzerland, right? Because you can't use those Swiss francs to buy products being produced in, say, uh, the Eurozone or in China or Japan, right? They can only be used to buy stuff coming out of the Swiss economy. Well, if the United States is issuing all of these dollars to countries that are importing goods into the United States, but not getting any goods out, and the United States continues to not be able to produce anything, again, evident in the United States, New York Empire manufacturing data, that means that there's there's no use, there's no value in those US dollars, which means that, again, this cannot go on forever. But this has helped prop up the American standard of living for quite some time. And it's another black swan event out there waiting to happen. But again, I think a lot of people don't really understand the trade relationship between the United States and the rest of the world, because again, the United States gets all the products for doing nothing. We pay for them with worthless paper money, which then gets recycled into our stock market and makes our country wealthier without doing any work. Again, nothing that can go on forever will. But to wrap up, we have the Jackson Hole Symposium about to come up. This is the big event for the Federal Reserve each year. And with that, I expect Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve is going to talk about starting to ramp up quantitative tightening in a big way in September. Again, they still have $8.8 trillion left on the balance sheet that they have to sell those treasuries into the market. That's going to push upward uh, pressure on interest rates for both treasury bonds and the mortgage-backed securities they have to sell. If they stick to that plan, which to this point they have not. Again, quantitative tightening was supposed to start in June. We're already at the end of August and it hasn't been done at all. In fact, the balance sheet has actually increased since June 1st. But if they actually start to tighten and sell these treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities in the market, interest rates are going to start to skyrocket even more. Again, that's very bad news if that actually happens for the stock market. And that also is very bad news for the economy as a whole, because then again, then consumer spending is going to start to drop, creating an even more severe recession, more slowdown and growth. And that's very bad news for the market overall. We have a lot of economic data that's going to come out this week, though, give us more clarification on where the economy is heading from here, especially on Friday. Uh, Thursday, the Jackson Hole Symposium day one starts, but it also continues into Friday. And on Friday, we're going to get the core PCE price index month over month. We're going to get the U.S. trade balance, personal spending numbers, personal income numbers, wholesale inventories, and consumer sentiment and inflation expectation data. And Jerome Powell is also going to speak on Friday. So we'll be back again next Sunday for more. But we're going to get a lot of clarity for the markets this week. But if the Federal Reserve continues to be hawkish in its sentiment and raising rates in the future and supposedly shrinking its balance sheet, that is very bad news for U.S. stocks. But we are pretty much following uh, right on course now with trading patterns and stocks going into the 2008 financial crisis. If you pull up a chart of the year from 2007 to 2008 heading into the financial crisis and you put that line next to a chart of the current last year trading in the markets, it looks very similar. Now, that doesn't mean that the pattern is going to continue for sure, but if the pattern does continue, we're about to see another 20% decline or so in U.S. stocks. Now, we saw these past uh, months in the market, everyone was getting extremely bearish, but most earnings held up. As I've been saying, a lot of earnings are going to hold up because corporations have been able to pass higher costs to consumers because the Fed is not raising rates high enough to create demand destruction. But in the past two weeks, we've started to see a lot of value stocks pick up momentum. A lot of money managers were chasing growth stocks in the past month to get back in the risk trade. But the Fed is continuing on its rate hiking course in the next leg of this bear market is likely to continue. Remember, the biggest rallies occur in bear markets. And while the market still remains historically expensive, again, it's trading at 19 times earnings, and typically it trades at 14 to 15 times earnings, some of the stocks still remain great bargains. 
I've talked about healthcare, the energy sector, resources and materials, gold stocks especially, and hot, other value-oriented names. Because again, corporate earnings are not going to decline too much, if at all, because they're passing higher costs to their customers and they're able to do so because the Fed is not raising interest rates high enough to slow the consumer spending and credit bubble down. They're only slowing, raising rates enough to slow down the market and the economy, but they're not doing it enough to slow down inflation. That's why you got to own stocks, but you have to own value stocks. You can't own growth stocks. Again, there's very little growth that's going to go on in this economy, but what is going to continue to happen is corporations that sell products that people need, sell services that people need, are going to continue to see their earnings come in at expectations, and they're going to pass higher costs on the customers. So growth stocks still remain incredibly overvalued, especially the cyclical names, autos, restaurants, housing, leisure and hospitality. But there are some incredible generational investment opportunities out there right now. And most investors remain focused on the wrong sectors and wrong asset classes. Again, it's the value stocks that are undervalued and re represent a generational buying opportunity. Now, my asset management business is close to getting up and running. It's still going to take more time for me to get it up fully. But for now, if you'd like to contact me to set up a time to discuss your personal investment strategy, you can email me at truenorthinternationalpartners at gmail.com and we can set up a time to discuss your investment strategy moving forward. But for that, for now, this is going to be it for the podcast. I'll be back next Sunday. We'll see what happens with the Jackson Hole Symposium and Jerome Powell speaking on Friday. But I hope everyone has a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday.